0: From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language, and this episode is going to be all about color. Living color. Yes, remember the third season's theme song, I mean, In Living Color? I used to record that religiously on my VCR, and the music was I guess one said back then it was fly (laughs) like the show's fly girls Jennifer Lopez anyway the theme song first from the third season by the way I like this better than the first one here we go the on a funky comes another one of those funky money shows so it's all about color this week and what I mean is this you think that any language has words for both green and blue or do you think that any language that calls itself a language has words for pink and orange you know they really don't and something I've stressed on this show is that you never know what a language will do without. And so not all languages mark tense in any way. Not all languages have a word for less as opposed to more. It's perfectly okay to just be able to say more than and then less than you just do by twisting things around. And language is different in another way that you might not think about, which is in how many terms they have for colors. You'd never think of it until you step outside your own language and see. And more specifically... In the 1960s, Paul Kay and Brent Berlin discovered that colors appear in languages in a certain order in an almost exceptionless fashion. Of course, there's some hairs out of place here and there, but the general tendency is very, very strong. And in general, you can put languages on a kind of scale. Some languages have very few terms for color. Some languages have too many. But the colors happen in a certain order order. So some languages will only have terms for black and white and then nothing else. Now, if a language only has three color terms, if it has something besides black and white, that next color is always red. It's not going to be blue. It's not going to be brown, always red. So you'll find a language with black, white, and red, but never a language with black, white, and say purple. Not like that. If a language is going to have more than black, white, and red, then what's next is either green or yellow, but not brown, not purple. And so it's going to be, I've got black and white and red and green or yellow, and then no words for the other colors. That's how it goes. And you can go down a scale. And by color terms here, I mean real colors. So we're talking about a word that isn't really two or three words put together that isn't describing some specific thing. And so we don't mean something like, well, it's cherry colored or it's the color of an eggshell. We mean just words that don't mean anything else except referring to that color. Color terms. Languages differ. So we can go through the colors and we can see what colors can tell us, not only about themselves, but of course about where the words come from and so very much more. So, for example... We can say pretty much there's a little bit of controversy here, but pretty much all languages have at least words for black and white. That seems to be fairly universal. And so we can start with black. That is always there in some way. Actually, in Old English, There's this term black, but when you kind of read between the lines, it doesn't seem to really quite mean what we mean by black. It means something kind of like shiny and dark, which can be black, but can be other colors, including light ones. And really, what black should be in English, if you know German, where, for example, the word for black is schwarz, etc., it really should be a word that actually is on the margins of our language. Now, swart, that's what Really it should be, and that's what the real word for black was back in old English. And it's interesting that Swart word traces back to the big granddaddy language of all Indo-European languages. It's called Proto-Indo-European. We'll never know what its speakers called it. But the word in that language was Swardo. So Swart goes back to Swardo. And Swardo comes down to us more directly as sorted. So you never know how these things are going to happen. Swardo becomes sorted and it becomes swart. But then when we think of something that's just generically black, we have a word black rather than swart. So you never know. Languages are always changing, as I'm always describing. For example, if you think about Indo-European languages, and what the word for black is, what might come to your mind, is those N words that we know. Not not that N word, but for example, noir in French or negro in Spanish. Those don't come from Swardo, and they have nothing to do with our black word. Those probably come from the Proto-Indo-European root for night time. And so... All those N words are, and I, I keep saying that, all of those are from nighttime, and then swart, which really is the word that we should be using for black. We should actually bring that one back in, except some people might find that it reminds them of the schwarzes word that is from Yiddish, so maybe we can't bring it back, but that goes back to swarto, and then black goes back to something completely different that I'll mention a little later, but you know, I just got the itch, it's time for a little bit of music, And you know what I'm going to use here, actually? I'm going to use a song called Big Black Mole. This is Kurt Vile, and the lyric is Maxwell Anderson. And this is Lost in the Stars, a very peculiar and noble musical about South Africa from 1949. And we're going to hear Big Black Mole sung by a little black boy. His name was Herbert Coleman. And he stopped the show every night with this song back then. And, you know, it's funny, Herbert Coleman. If you met somebody named Herbert Coleman today, if you think about it, Herbert Coleman is is probably on a cane. Herbert Coleman is probably about 80. But people with names like that where you know it's the name of an old person, well, they were young once. And the thing about this recording is you can hear somebody named Herbert Coleman when he was still a boy soprano. So listen to Big Black Mole. You can hear a boy soprano singing a song that's neither in Latin nor about religion. Very catchy little song. Here it is. Big Mole had a girl who was small and sweet. He promised her diamonds for her hands and feet. He dug so deep and he dug so well. He broke right into the ceiling of hell. And he looked the old devil's bang in the eye. And he said, I'm not coming back here till I die. Down, down. At the bottom is big black mole, big black mole, big black mole, big black mole. Isn't it great hearing him? Little Herbie Coleman, stop the show. In any case, that's black, and then there's white. Now, our word white, that traces way back to Proto-Indo-European to a word that would be pronounced roughly quite, And that brings us to a little squirt of stuff that spread all over Europe and nobody quite understands it. I've mentioned it once before. It's this mobile S that floats all over the place, the S mobile, as Proto-Indo-Europeanists call it. And what I mean is that, for example, we have that word whale for that magnificent animal. Don't you kind of believe they don't really exist? You know, even the photographs, I'll bet, are faked, but apparently there really are these whales. In Latin, the word for whale is squalus, so it's as if it's a swale. Then, on the other hand, we talk about snow, but then in the languages that we English speakers learn most immediately, it's things like neige in French and nieve, in Spanish, so nez, nieve. Well, what's our "s"? Really, the word should be no. It's supposed to be kind of like no is falling on the ground. That's snow. Nobody knows where that "s" came from. And it pops up in the oddest places. You never know quite where it's going to be. It's kind of like Gary Coleman on TV back in the 70s. He popped up guesting on every show. He was in every special. The Esmobile is the Gary Coleman. And in this case, we talk about Kuwait. Well, knock the K off and it's weight and you've got white. But for those of you who know or like Russian, there's that word for light, for brightness, sit. That's the S mobile. Again, because it's s and then it's like saying s white. Sit. So there's that little S, that that little Gary Coleman that's always kind of spinning all over Europe. The S mobile. And that's our white lesson. So you've got black and white. And they're languages that really only have that. And you can imagine how you could get along with just saying that something is black, something is white, or then you'd say, well, it's the color of a dung beetle. Well, it's the color of a papaya leaf, etc., etc. There are languages like that. But if you're going to have another real, independent, solid meat and potatoes color term that doesn't mean anything else, it's going to be red. So you're going to have black, white, and red. Remember that stupid joke, what's black, white, and red all over? And it's not even worth giving you the answer. But anyway, so black, white, and red, that traces back to proto-Indo-European, a word root. And, you know, if you've got road, it can come out in all sorts of ways. In English, it really should have come out as something like raid or something like read instead of read. Originally, it was spelled R-E-A-D. And as we've seen or heard in this show, that E-A usually comes out as E, like meat and seat and treat. And then sometimes you get great stake and break for some reason, but only occasionally is it eh, such as with bread and tread and deaf. And remember that deaf really actually is deaf in some dialects. And so what are you deaf for something from the cartoon? And here red is one of those the spelling has changed which kind of hides the history, but it's one of those with a slightly eccentric phonetic evolution. But talk about road it's really interesting what happens to that root from language to language, such as in Danish. Now, with the spelling, it's R and then the O with the cute slash through it that you know, looks cute to us in Scandinavian languages, we Anglophones. And then D. And so you look at it and you think that probably you can say in Copenhagen that you want red wine and you can say that you want your wine to be something like rude, like you're thinking that the slash through the O means that you do something kind of Scandinavian. So it's not going to be road, but it's going to be like rude. That is not what it is because all this crap happens to sounds as they go through time. I love failing to order red wine in Copenhagen with this particular word. It's not rude like that. It's Danish is so hard to pronounce, and I always feel a Dane looking over my shoulder. It's r, Now, what am I doing? First of all, the R is that uvular R, that Frenchy R. So it's not r, it's r, back there. So r. Then it is u, so you have to do that. That's easy. Then it's not d, and it's not v. In the Looney Tunes show, I told you about what are called glides, where really it's like you're... Pretending to make a sound, but you can't even really be bothered to put your articulators together. And so, like, wuh, yuh. You know, these kind of passing, wan, waving sounds. They don't have to be wuh and ye. There are all sorts of glides like that possible in a language. And with this quote-unquote D, it's not duh. It's not the, It's a glidey v And so, it's just yeah. It's kind of like you start to go the, but then you can tell nobody's listening, so you don't really do it. So, so it's I- that's how you say red. So it's this word that started out as something like road. And they say, well, and if you try to say it, you just sound stupid. And they either give you white wine or they say, do you want red? I've never been able to get it out properly. But that is the Danish one. Now, one has music about the word red, of course. And I'm going to use this. This is Burt Bacharach. This is 1965. And this is one of those things, you know, written out on paper, My Little Red Book really isn't much. But try to guess what instruments are even here. This is one of my favorite two and a half minutes ever. I'm not going to play you the whole song. But this is My Little Red Book. There's something so plangent about it. Just listen to the arrangement. Bacharach was very good at this. You've got black, white, and red. Then after that, it's green or yellow. If green comes in, yellow comes in. If yellow is first, then green comes in. It's always like that. That's just the way it goes. And so, yellow goes back to a solid Proto-Indo-European root, we know Proto-Indo-European at least went up to yellow, and it was a root that was gel, and it meant shiny. Actually, Proto-Indo-European stopped here. So it's got good solid words for black, and white, and red, and yellow, and that's it. Suppose you're a language that only has black, white, and red, and you want to discuss yellow. There are various ways you can do it. But what's interesting is the way it's done in a language like, for example, one that I've studied called Saramakan Saramakin is a language I've mentioned on this show, actually more than once, and it's spoken in the Surinamese rainforest by descendants of slaves who were lucky enough to escape from the plantations on the coast. And today, these people, hundreds of years later, speak a language created there, which is a mixture of English and Portuguese, a bit of Dutch, and two African languages, Fongbe and Kikongo. Now, that language started out with just black White and red. And what's interesting about a language that doesn't have a particular way of expressing yellow is that you can say, well, the color of a canary or the color of some other yellow thing. But to people who speak languages like those, something that's also common is that what is yellow is referred to as red. The idea is that red and yellow are all within the same body of color. And so these are languages that some people call the rello languages, meaning that you have a term that refers not only to things that are the color of an apple, but also to something like the yolk of an egg. And so, for example, one of the weirdest things about Saramacan is that the word for red is be, which is actually an African word. Be, it's fun to say, actually, because it's an implosive B. You can pronounce it that way. So it's not be, but it's be. Be, it's fun. It really is. If you're like stuck waiting for a train or something and you actually do repeat it. And so be is red. If you're talking about the redness, for example, the redness in an egg, you say bebe diobo. Bebe diobo means the yolk of the egg. It's the bebe but what that means is it's the redness. And you think to yourself, well, what kind of eggs do you have? And you're waiting for them to have these magic eggs that have a red yolk. But no, they have you know, yellow yolks. It's just that that particular color is a variation on red if you don't have a dedicated word for yellow. So you just never know. Or, for example, you might just have your yellow, but you stop there and you don't have a word for green. And so, for example, in English, we have a word for green, but that comes from a word that meant to grow. And so it's about things that are the color of things that are growing. And so it doesn't come from a Proto-Indo-European word that meant green. It meant growy things. And so that's more specific. That's kind of like having a word that means something like the color of a cherry or something Something like that. Or if you're a language that has black, white, red, and then you do have a yellow and a green, you still don't have a blue. And it's quite common in languages around the world to have something that specialists in this subject call a gru. Gru is a word that refers to both green and blue, which doesn't seem so counterintuitive, especially in the Crayola sense of there being the blue-green crayon, etc. But if you go into many languages, you find that there's a word that's first introduced to you as meaning green that actually covers blue. So Japanese, which is always fun to sample, there's the word "ao," And "ao" is the color of a plant owl is the color of the sky and, you know, swimming pool water and everything in between. Or Old Welsh, not modern Welsh, but Old Welsh had a word, gloss. And, you know, even if you don't know Old Welsh, and I know all of us don't, you know, many of us are rusty in our Old Welsh, you can tell that gloss meant both green and blue. Can't you just kind of hear it? Gloss. That's a mixture of green and blue. So they're rello languages, and so you've got the redness of the egg, and then you've got your groove languages, which is actually half of the languages of the world, believe it or not. What this means is no language has color terms for just, say, black, green, and purple. No such thing. Or even black, white, and green. They come in a certain order, and so you'll have black, white, red, green, yellow. If you have five, it's those, and you're not going to have blue. It's not going to be black, white, red, blue, and green. It just doesn't happen that way. And this explains something. There's some odd things in, say, Homer. A lot of us are familiar with the wine, dark sea. And, you know, that's a sweet notion, but does the sea really look... Like it's the color of wine? Not usually. Or, you know, maybe there's some blood that's going to be falling from the sky. But that doesn't happen very often. Frankly, you know, the wine dark sea. And you Think to yourself, it's blue, damn it. And you think, well, OK, well, this is poetic and it's a very long time ago, but he didn't have a blue term. And so what are you going to say that the C is if you haven't got a blue? If you don't have a blue, you might use green, but it might open up your imagination and you might say that it is the dark red color because you don't have blue. Or this is one that's really bizarre. You'll be reading through Homer, as we all do, and honey is described as green. Ah, the green honey. What is that? Why, why would it be green? Well, if you don't have a yellow, well, then green is going to make some sense because to you, your term for green is going to extend into your term for yellow quite plausibly. I remember when my older daughter was about two, I brought her to my office and I always have honey with my tea and I gave her her first spoonful of honey. And she said, I want more honey, please. I thought that was so cute. Green honey. It makes sense. Or the philosopher, Empedocles. At one point, he's you know discoursing about color in a very erudite way. And he says, well, as far as colors are concerned, there's light, there's dark, there's red, and there's yellow. And you think to yourself, did you have some sort of ocular problem? Or is there something wrong with the Greeks? Why can't you guys see? And, of course, they saw, just as we do, they were anatomically just like us. It's that light, dark, it was the black and the white, then, of course, the red, then the yellow, and it happened to stop there. So he didn't have green, he didn't have blue, he didn't have raw umber, he didn't have aquamarine, didn't have that. So, of course, to somebody who's only got the basic four... There, he would say, well, you've got light, dark, you've got red and yellow. And then for him, everything else was variations on those. People have actually surmised that perhaps the ancient Greeks really did have different rods and cones than we do because of these sorts of things that you see in their literature. But really, it was just a matter of how color terms enter a language. And the fact being that you don't need to have as many basic ones as modern languages often have. You know, it's time for some sort of clip. And and Diana, you know that I wouldn't want to use my coloring book here. And Bobster, I want to have, I've got a rainbow working for me, but nobody wants to hear Vincent Price sing. And so, you know what I'm going to use? I'm going to just go from yellow. In Oklahoma, at one point, the evil character Judd is musing about Laurie's yellow hair. And I just sat through the movie of Oklahoma and they cut that song, Lonely Room, because essentially it's about Judd masturbating. But what's interesting about the movie is that at one point, Shirley Jones, as Laurie, is talking about a mud wasp and yet listen to her pronunciation. We don't want people talking about us, do we? Do you think people really do talk about us? You know how they hear. Like a swarm of mud wasps. Always got to be buzzing about something. (laughs) What's a mud wasp? Why did she say that? And if you think about it, though, it should be WASP because of CLASP and HASP. And so why is it WASP? Why do we say it that way? And you know what? Nobody knows. It's just one of those things. So (laughs) there's the clip because nobody wants to hear Vincent Price sing. So we've got our basic ones. The other colors come later. And that includes in English. And so, for example, blue, you think of blue as something so very, very basic. Our clothes are blue. Our feelings are often blue. Blue is everywhere. No, in English, not really. Not as a dedicated term until about 1300. It's just not really absolutely necessary. And the root of blue in Proto-Indo-European is actually the same one that led to our word black. It was just some word that meant roughly shiny and it could go in various directions, and that same root is in Latin as flavus, which means yellow, and then in Greek it's phallos, which means white, and in Welsh it means gray. So there's this shiny term that ends up meaning all sorts of things. It's subjective from language to language. Some of it is chance. There was... um. A female impersonator who was very famous on the American stage in the teens and early 20s. His name was Bert Savoy, and he had two catchphrases. One of them was, Oh, you don't know the half of it, dearie. You don't know the half of it. One day, Bert Savoy was walking on the beach, and a storm was about to come up, and he had this pendant hanging on his neck. And there was this big lightning strike. And Bert Savoy looked up at the sky and he said, that'll be enough out of you, Miss God. And then lightning struck again. It hit the pendant and he died right there on the beach. A very sad story. But the half of it, dearie, catchphrase was so popular that George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin made it into a song. And right here is George Gershwin playing the piano, as he did with Fred Astaire dancing. And you can hear them talking to each other. Listen to this. I've got the you, don't know the half of it, deary blue. The trouble is you have so many from whom to choose. With your permission, it's my ambition Just to go through life, saying meet the wife. I've got the you don't know the half of it dearie blue That was George Gershwin's voice, the Half of a Deary Blues. That's from Lady Be Good in 1924. Anyway, that's blue. And then brown comes after blue. So you don't have a language that has a word for brown, but no word for blue. In English, that dedicated word for brown only comes in around 1,200. It's interesting. I knew a guy. Well, I never really knew him, but I knew somebody who had known a guy who came from an indigenous place in the third world from a language that did not have as many color terms as English. And an interesting thing about his perception of colors, his verbal expression of his perception of colors, was that to him, everything was just brown. To him, it was just, oh, what's that brown? Brown, because to him, the idea of having black, white, red, green, yellow, blue, brown, and then all the other ones was something that he had to adjust to having labels for these things. And so for him, for some reason, it settled on brown, that everything just looked like things were brown. I was told that he was more handsome than me because he was Ethiopian, and that as I got older, I was going to be less attractive because I was going to have fat cheeks. Needless to say, that relationship didn't work out anyway. So once you've got brown, then you get this explosion. You have choices. It's either gonna be orange, pink, purple, or gray. All four of those, which we think of as so basic, come afterward. A language can very easily not have words for orange and pink. And so, for example, English only has a dedicated word for orange in a generic sense around 1300. Until then, for things that we would now call orange, you'd use something more specific, such as something being saffron colored, or there was a word citrine. And orange is interesting because that word should be Narange. We should be calling it a narange. And so there's a word that comes from India, narangas. That's what it is originally, narangas. That comes into Romance languages as, for example, Narancha in Italian. And then over in French, that's norange, as we would pronounce it now. But imagine what happens when you put an indefinite article in front of it. So, in norange, in orange, in orange. Orange. The "n" ended up getting clipped off like some little piece of RNA and left on the indefinite article and just left orange instead of orange. And then we borrow it and it's orange. But really, it should be n'orange, but it just isn't. And here we are making our way. Pink is really late in the game. Pink is 1733. It used to be that if you wanted to refer to something as pink, the closest thing English had was to call it, this is actually good, incarnate, and that's flesh-colored. But really, you know, it was light red. Pink comes in probably, there's a little bit of a dispute, but it probably has to do with pinking shears. You ever hurt yourself with a pair of pinking shears that give things that kind of jagged, toothed edge? Well, they're flowers that just naturally have that jagged, toothed edge, so it looked like they had been pinked, and so those flowers were called pinks, and many of them are the incarnate color, and next thing you know, you've got this word pink. And then, purple. That's only the early 1400s, it starts as the term for a kind of dye, and it's from Latin purpura, and so really, it shouldn't be purple, it should be purpur. We should be calling things purper, and we did for a good long time, but purple, which really started out as a quote-unquote wrong way of pronouncing it, just kind of caught on, and so now we talk about purple grapes and purple rain. No, I'm not going to play that. It should be purper rain, and see how that wouldn't really be as good, but the word is supposed to be purper. Just like February, if people would just let the damn language alone, it's fevral. That's how that word had come to be pronounced. January, feverel, March. I love saying "feveral. Feveral, all is calm. That's what it should be. February always sounds like you're walking along and you trip over some little pony. February, that's what it's like. February, you know, nobody young says it right. It's like library. It should be library. But we're just stuck with these, these obstacles to serenity. And then you get gray. Gray is something that many languages get very, very late, but life is sloppy. There are ponies in the road. And gray is in old English, you know, solid as anything. It clearly refers to things that are the color of ashes and a sky with lightning that's about to kill you, etc. So old English was odd in that way, in that gray is around much earlier than you would expect. But nevertheless, the general tendency is very much. There. Now, in terms of musical illustration of any of this, I think we're going to use Brown because if you're like me, you've always wanted to hear Hattie McDaniel that's Queenie in Gone with the Wind, sing. That's how her career started. She was called Hi-Hat Hattie. But you don't get to hear her do it very often unless you're watching Thank Your Lucky Stars, a movie of 1943 where she sings a song with music by Arthur Schwartz and lyrics by Frank Lesser. Many of you are writing in wanting their... To be some sort of song list published by Slate. So I'm trying to give you a little bit more info because I don't think Slate's going to be publishing any song lists. But in any case, this is Ice Cold Katie, one of the catchiest songs ever written, and nobody cares about it because the movie is bad. Here we go. Ice Cold Katie, won't you marry the soldier? Ice Cold Katie, won't you do it today? Ice Cold Away. yeah. Ice cold Katie, he's a dying to hold you. Keep that day that came and far. Ice cold Katie, won't you marry the soldier? Soon he's off to war. Here I am outside, ringing, ringing, ringing on your bell. Ringing so long, he's gonna be a double U O no. L. Ice cold Katie, why don't you do what I told you? Melt on down. So, that's how it works. Black and white, red, green or yellow, green and yellow, then blue, then brown, then you get your oranges and your pinks and your grays and your purples, always in that way with only the very occasional exception. And, you know, there are some weird cases. The Piraha are these interesting people in the Amazonian rainforest that have made the news over the past 15 years or so for not having any numbers in their language. And there's something else that Piraha actually probably doesn't have. They don't seem to have any color terms at all. So when they want to refer to something as black, there's a word that means dirty blood, but there's no word that actually just means black. And there's the same thing with white. One is always hearing about what the Piraha don't have. It's a curious thing. One of these days I'm imagining that we're gonna hear that the Piraha lack internal organs, but they do not have numbers and they do not have color terms, according to my friend Daniel Everett, and I trust him. As we near the end of this edition. One thing I wanted to fill in, remember when I talked about that old expression, be yourself, and how it didn't mean be the person that you really are, but back in the day, it was a piece of slang that meant relax, get over yourself, untense your shoulders. It's funny, other examples have come over the transom. Well, it wasn't really the transom. I was watching Here Comes Mr. Jordan from 1945, and listen to the usage of it right here. Hey, Max. Be yourself, pal. Look, will you please remember he can't see you and he can't hear you. That clearly has nothing to do with getting in touch with your inner self. It's just relax. And thank you to Tomas Proleski for giving me this example from Twin Peaks back in 1991. For those of you too young to remember, back in 1990 and 1991, Twin Peaks was like Breaking Bad. It was what people talked about at all parties and you either had to watch it or you had to pretend to have watched it. I must admit, I was in the latter class of people. But this is a scene from Twin Peaks, 1991. This is Billy Zane and Sherilyn Fenn. And listen to Be Yourself being used. I wonder what writers stuck this in, in what was by 1991, very much an antique usage of the term. What that means is the next time you come into my room and carry on like this, you better be ready to finish whatever it is you came here to start. Maybe I'm ready now. Be yourself. I am being myself. you know, my sabbatical is over, which really is not something that I should be burdening you with, except that I think I need to to reiterate a gentle request that I made about the mail, because I think some of you have come into the show since I made this request. I am happy to answer as many of your questions as I can. As I say, I can't get to all of them, but I do read all of them and I learn a lot from them. But I would prefer that each of you ask me just one question. Some of you are zealous and I get it. And you'll write me with like six queries. And you know, I just I'm sorry, I just don't have time for those. And so please just one. And, you know, if you want to ask another one, then either wait a while or disguise your name or something. But the ones with four and five, I just, I don't know how to choose. And so if you haven't heard from me, it's just because you know, there, sometimes there seem to be only 17 hours in my days, whereas everybody else seems to get 24. In any case, uh, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. The show was edited, as always, by Mike Vuala And I'm John McWhorter, and you knew this is what was going to happen here. You can own a cow if you know the joy of light and shade. You can own a joy that will never fade. This is Vincent Price singing a song. The musical is Darling of the Day, 1969. I survey, I've got a rainbow working for me. The world and all its wonder beneath the Milky Way. Beg me to take them, beg me to make them mine each day. I own the Taj Mahal and a castle in the cafe. I own the sunrise...